Want to learn a new language? And who doesn't? Well, experience immersive lessons from the most trusted language app, Rosetta Stone. You know you keep telling yourself you want to learn a new language. The true accent feature even gives feedback on your pronunciation so you can speak the language like a native. Find lessons as short as 10 minutes, making it easy for you to learn anytime, anywhere. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash startalk today. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist. And today, we're going to talk about forensic pathology. Not only the real thing, but what happens when it becomes novelized and becomes fictionalized storytelling. Chuck, always good to have you. Always good to be here. Alive. Alive. I think on this topic, we're going to need some serious levity. <laughs> well, nothing like, I mean, that, I, yeah. I, and what do you call it when it's already done? Now, gallows humor is when you're about to die. What do you call, oh, it, when, what do you call okay. it when you're already dead? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I want to know. Uh, so we have a, a fascinating pair of guests on this episode. First, we have Patricia Cornwell, and we've actually had her on before. And she has another novel she's going to tell us about. And she not only talked about dead people, talks about dead people and the science behind the crimes that are involved, she also took that to space. Wow. And so that's why we've got her on this show. And But she's a novelist, and she came to the subject as a journalist. But now we have a novelist who started writing novels because he was actually a, 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 a medical examiner, all right? This is his guy's expertise, Jonathan Hayes. Dr. Jonathan Hayes, welcome to Star Talk. Thanks, Neil. Hey, Chuck. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Wow. Now, now so you you came to, to the writing profession having started as a sort of professional of dead people. What 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 is your official sort of title other than sort of you work in the medical examiner's office but what does someone call you as a profession as a scientific profession? My scientific title is I, I'm a forensic pathologist and you know a pathologist is a physician who makes diagnoses by examining samples taken from patients and that may be a blood sample or if you have a weird mole you'll, you'll biopsy it and it's a pathologist who looks at it under the microscope. 
The pathologist is also the, the physicians who do autopsies. And an autopsy is an examination of the body after death, and it's carried out in order to get as much information as possible about the cause and the circumstances of that death. And it starts by looking at the outside of the body. The body is examined for scars or tattoos or identifying marks and for evidence of disease or injury. Then the body is opened and examined internally. We'll examine all the organs. We'll place uh, the remains uh, of the organs back in the body, and we may do some additional testing, for example, looking for drugs, or we may do some DNA testing. Uh, if there are any injuries internally, we'll document those too. And then we'll perform, uh, we'll prepare an autopsy report. So that, that's basically what a pathologist does. Now, I'm a forensic pathologist, and that's a subspecialty of pathology. And for forensic pathologists do autopsies on the victims of violent, unnatural, or suspicious deaths. So on a daily basis, uh, I examine wounds and I interpret wounds. So if you, if you get shot or stabbed, when you get to the ER, the ER docs are going to just be examining you to try and, try and save your life. They're not going to interpret the wounds. They may have guesses at what's an entrance wound and what's an exit wound, but that's the area of expertise of the pathologist, the forensic pathologist. And so on a daily basis, I'm looking at wounds and trying to interpret uh, those wounds and what actually happened to the person. Now, now how often, doctor, uh, do you ex examine someone who has uh, been felled by gunshot and your, uh, your determination is, oh, they didn't die of a gunshot wound? That is yet to happen. Gunshot wounds, <laughs> gunshot wounds tend to be fairly lethal. Gun gunshot wounds are, are, are far more likely to be lethal than most other types of injury. For example, they're five, you're five times more likely to, be, uh, to die if you're shot than if you're stabbed. Wow. Mm. Oh, look at that. Okay, but so that 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 brings to that puts on the table the very question: If let's say it's not a gunshot wound, with where you have that sort of the easy statistics on that, if two people just sort of got into a fight and then one person ultimately dies, is is it important that you find out the actual thing that killed the person, or or does that even matter if the person's dead and? They have multiple injuries no, it's, that it's, sort of lead up to it. It's critically important that we find out exactly why, why the person is, is, de is dead. That, that's our raison d'etre. You know, we, we have to know exactly why the person died because you would be surprised at the complexities of the questions that arise, the legal questions and the medical questions when someone dies, particularly in an altercation or a fight. So uh, we, we spend a lot of time um, getting it right and we have endless debates about the exact wording of the death certificate. Wow, and and are, are, is what you do filmed? No, it's uh, it's we document our findings photographically. I mean, occasionally you'll find uh, video documentation of a crime scene. There'll be a video walkthrough, um, but what, what the, the autopsy itself is not, is not uh, filmed. Why? Why not? Because I I really don't, I don't know. I'm sure there's be a lot of extreme. Oh, just tradition. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, no. Tradition. It's, no, I'm sure there'd be a lot of extraneous information. An autopsy can be long. For example, a typical autopsy. Say you have a a 40 year old man who's jogging on a, on a, a treadmill at his uh, at his gym and collapses. That autopsy assuming he's got something straightforward like heart disease, which is the most likely cause of death there. That autopsy will take about an hour. But if you have a complex case like a a, a, a child abuse case, a fatal child abuse case, those can take a couple of days. Um, so, so it's a, a long period of time. Also, I, I, th I, don't, I, I don't think anyone likes to be, you know, closely monitored while they're doing you know, their work. Of course, we're sitting here. Well, no, here's, here's why I ask. I mean, presumably, forensic pathology has come a long way over the decades. There might be things in 10 years 
someone would know to look for that you don't yet know to look for because the field has not advanced to that point. Wouldn't it be good if we could reopen the videos and have a, a third party do the autopsy based on the video as though they were your eyes looking at the same uh, body? I, I understand what you're saying, but the thing is, I, I, when you say that uh, you know, forensic pathology has come a long way, it really hasn't. I mean, a stab wound, is, okay. a stab wound in 2021 <laughs> looks like a stab wound in 1921 or a stab wound in 1821. Um, and we do document things very thoroughly. We take a lot of photographs. Uh, I mean, I suppose you could put on some sort of virtual reality headset and video record and, and have some sort of three-dimensional interactive thing going on there. Um, but I don't, I don't think that sort of, well, I, I, you know, perhaps obviously I, you're now talking about unknown unknowns, so I don't really know the answer to that question, but I think it would be terribly cumbersome right, to try right. and have a video camera op and documenting every single step of the autopsy. So, so is what you're saying that for what you do, it, it really is the fact that we continue to kill each other kind of the same way. Like, we, we don't we don't really get that creative when it comes to killing each other. <laughs> well, you'd be, su you'd, you'd be surprised. I mean, one of the things I've been doing this work for over 30 years now, and every week I see something I've never seen before. Oh, it's, it's, no. And, and, and it's not so much in terms of, of the homicides. It's not so much the murders. You know, murder is murder. People have knives and guns and baseball bats and whatnot. It's it's more just the, the peculiar circumstances, the peculiar things that people get, you know, positions that people get themselves into. There'll always be something at a, at a death scene that you can't explain. Ooh, that mm. that's fascinating, mm. actually. Uh, now, now I, I don't know that you can major in forensic pathology in, in college. So what, what does one major in? Is it pre-med? Yes. What, it's, it's, what it's, are some of the trackings that get to where you are? It's to become a forensic pathologist, you go to college, you do pre-med, go to medical school. Then after graduating medical school, you do three years of, of, of at least three years, three to five years of pathology residency. Then you do a one-year forensic training, uh, which I did in Miami. Wow. And uh, and then all of a sudden, 12 years after you began, you're a forensic pathologist. Now, I work in a medical examiner uh -huh. system. A medical examiner is a uh, physician who's specialized in uh, forensic pathology. Uh, it's not an a, a elected position. Uh, and we investigate deaths, violent, unnatural, and suspicious deaths for Quincy. a city or a jurisdiction. Yeah, you're Quincy. Yeah, I, I've, I've actually never watched that show. <laughs> oh, man. I used to watch that show when I was a kid, man. Quincy was the best. Jack Klugman, man. He, he used to walk around. He, had a, he, he, he would eat sandwiches. <laughs> he would eat sandwiches during the, during the autopsy. The guy was great, man. Well, I, I, I enjoy a good sandwich, but, you know, no one eats in the autopsy room. It's not the sort of place you sit down and go, oh, this is an appetizing place to enjoy a <laughs> <laughs> So what of this training and your life experience did you feel compelled to put into your novel? Do I have Precious Blood, A Hard Death? Precious Blood was the first one, and A Hard Death was the second. And the first the first is, is like I think in most novelists, it's a very uh, auto, you know, semi-autobiographical, I should say. It's set in, in New York City after 9-11. It's a serial killer story. Um, but I used a lot of my day-to-day -day experiences. I don't... I, I can't, we don't really talk about our cases. Uh, I mean, it's a matter of medical privacy. Uh, but I wanted to talk about the things I'd seen and the things that disturbed and upset me. So I put a lot of that into the, into, into the book. And 9-11 was one of the things that disturbed and upset, upset me. My work after that, 
our work in this office for, for, for you know for eight solid months and just trying to identify people that was that was the hardest part of my life I think absolutely but I tried to make I, I tried to make the uh, the uh, description of you know what forensics is and what it feels like to be in a morgue and the smell and the sights of death I tried to make them realistic and I think I did a pretty good job so let me ask you this but since you just brought this up I, I don't want to get super personal but you kind of broached the subject here how do you deal with all this kind of morose, just depressing information that you're absorbing almost daily? Well, the last few years have been have made it pretty hard to stay positive about anything. But uh, I think, you know, it's been my experience that human beings do do terrible things to each other. But also, uh, uh, for the most part, when given the opportunity, people do the right thing. And I, I recognize that the murders I see, they're the exceptions. I and mean, though there may be horrible crimes indeed, uh, on, on, a, on a daily basis, most people are trying to do the right thing. Wow. Okay. Uh, all right. It's hope prevails, I think, is how we think about that. So um, what's interesting, if we contrast, Jonathan, your, your pathway into writing novels with that of Patricia um, uh, Cornwall, who is uh, shared with us some of what inspires her when she approaches a novel that needs a bit of forensic pathology to make it run. Let's check it out. What we're really talking about is ex exploration. We're exploring, which is exactly why we want to go to the moon and do all those cool things is, and when, if you're going to be an artist, you need to explore and go out and let it tell you what the story is. Let it tell you what the painting is. Like, you know, James McNeil Whistler, he had, had this boat one who would take him out in this flat bottom boat in the Thames at, at dusk. And he would look, he'd stand there on the filthy Thames in the Victorian era and look at what the light was doing. He'd remember that. And then he would go back and he would paint something evocative because he was there. And you feel he was there. You feel Hemingway was in the places that he's talking about. And I very much encourage to people, here's my, I have three words for everybody. Just show up. Mm. Never know what you might find. So that I, so I like that because what, what you're saying is that to really, not to put words in your mouth, but to infuse a story with a certain authenticity, it can't be just things you've read about or heard about. If you experience them firsthand, they manifest differently even in your sentences and in the words you choose. And, 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 and your emotional investment becomes that much deeper. Is that a fair accounting of what you just told me? That's absolutely right. Um, you want to invoke your senses. Um, I mean, why go into a morgue if you can just see a video of an autopsy? Um, because when your senses are assaulted by everything in there, it is a totally different thing. It's as different as reality from virtual reality, probably even more so. And for example, I can remember, I can remember how shocked I would feel when I would go down there to scribe for the medical examiners and I would put on the gloves and, you know, this was back in the day when we didn't get in spacesuits like they do today with hazmat and all that. And I would put my hands on the body on the table where I'd lean on it while I'm jotting down whatever they're telling me and I'd it's like as cold as marble because and you'd be amazed over and over again about things that that you would not have emotional reactions to it if you didn't feel it and you weren't there um, or you didn't see it or you weren't you weren't standing there when the state trooper 
is looking through the woman's wallet. And she was hit by a car on her way home from the bar at about three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, nobody really knew what she'd gone there for or why. And she was by herself such a bad hour. And he's going through her wallet and he finds a little fortune from a fortune cookie that she had saved. And it said, you will, still, you will soon have an encounter that will change the course of your life. So she's going off to a bar to meet her encounter, not thinking it's going to be a car. And you look at these things and you don't know whether to laugh or to cry, but you do know, I, I feel this, if, if I don't go and see those things, I have no right to write about them. Mm. Mm. So, so Jonathan, you, you, you probably feel the same way, right? Because you're your writing emanates from your firsthand experiences, good, good and bad. Yeah, I think that in terms of the sensual aspects, the smells, the sounds, the sights, yeah, there's no substitute for firsthand experience. Then again, I mean, look at speculative fiction. In, in science fiction, people use their imaginations and think, what would it be like to see this or to experience that? And I think that's really rich too. In some ways, knowing what the truth is, uh, kind of at some level, deadens the fantasy you know I, I i don't take any in my own writing i don't take any liberties with the science because i can't i i wouldn't i wouldn't lie about it and that limits what you can do uh with with this, the set of facts in front of you and so i that's one of the reasons i really enjoy a show like csi uh where which was as i said before I, I, it's not so much um forensic science it's forensic science fiction I think they, 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 they take the principles of forensic science and they make it more glamorous and they speed it up. They put sexy lighting on it. And the, the end result, I think it, it may not get the technical accuracy of the forensic science, but it gets the romance of the science. And I, and I really do like that. And it's for that reason, I think CSI has been great because it's attracted a lot of people into forensics. And this is a field that really needs good people, good smart young people. So uh, what, you're, what you're saying is you... Um, when you're exploring the fiction of your storytelling, it's in the whatever relationships led to the crime. Um, you're not in a position to sort of stretch uh, any other uh, uh, science. I, I say that only because we look at a Stephen King novel, often he touches on supernatural forces and it leaves them a little bit cloaked, but something manifests and that adds another dimension that people seem to like to watch and even read about. But but you're sticking to the facts on this one. Well, that's that, that's just in my writing. And I wouldn't rule out writing fantasy or horror novel or something like that. But even if I do, if like the werewolf cuts someone's throat, I want to make, you know, to accurately depict the spray of blood or, or, or what have you. And so when I watch uh, when mm. I watch a lot of like crime stuff, it, it, sometimes it's at a procedural level, like the cops wouldn't do that or wouldn't say that. For example, when, the, when I'm watching a horror movie or a, or a crime movie, and, and like they visit a crime scene three days later and the, all the blood is still bright red. That, that's upsetting to me because blood goes brown and then it goes black. <laughs> it just looks so faint. Right. But, but, but I, I mean, I, right. I, I understand. I mean, since I've written you know, fiction myself, I understand the challenges of creating something interesting and riveting. And I understand people taking liberties with the facts. I don't think uh, Patty Cornwall does that um, because she, she too knows what it's like. So guys, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to find out how Patricia ends up putting her crime in space. <laughs> Apparently, Earth wasn't good enough. <laughs> let's, let's put people in space and have them commit crimes there, where you then need some more forensic pathology to figure out what the hell is going on when Star Talk returns. If you travel, you know how to really go off the grid. 
like no cell service in your room off the grid. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths, sound baths, and ice baths? Because when you set up your out-of-office, you mean it. Because when you're the escape artist, vacation is all about resting, meditating, drinking water, and minding your own businessing. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Learn more at go.amex slash you know. Sleep. Grocery shopping themselves. Just a few things working moms seldom have time for. And during tax season, you can add taxes to their list. So for all you working moms, make the easy switch to H&R Block and have an expert make easy work of your taxes. H&R Block guarantees your taxes are 100% accurate and your max refund or your money back. Plus, with their no surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even have an H&R Block Tax Pro do your taxes in a block office or online from the comfort of your own home. Can your current tax guy promise all that? When you're buried under life's to-dos, let the experts at H&R Block stay on top of your taxes with a return that's right on the money and your biggest refund possible. Because tax season after tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Descriptions of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Hey, I'm Roy Hill Percival, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Bringing the universe down to Earth, this is Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're back, Star Talk. We're talking about forensic pathology with best selling author Patricia Cornwell. And we have an authentic medical examiner in the house. In the house. We've got Dr. Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Hayes, who's not only medical examiner for New York City, of all places, but also a novelist in his own right. Chuck, right before the end of the second segment, looked like you wanted to slip in a question. What was that? Well, because he talked about how um, when you write forensic science fiction, that it makes it kind of sexy and it draws people into the field. Uh, he didn't say sexy, he said romantic. So, That's different. Well, um, I'm, I'm, I think sexy is right too. I, I may have said oh, sexy. all right. Yeah, oh, oh. you know, I'm sorry, Neil. You Excuse know. me. Unfortunately, okay. um, unfortunately, unfortunately for me, my romance leads to sexy. 
But what I'm interested to know is, do you find the same thing in your field of astrophysics? Do you think science fiction causes people to now, like, pursue the science of the cosmos? Yeah, it does. So that's why, even though, just like Jonathan, I'll call out things that are not real or wouldn't have happened that way. But I say the overall impact is positive. That uh, because what people can do now is they can get interested and then they say, I, I'm, I like that. Let me read some more about it. And then the reading some more about it actually brings them into an anchored state of understanding. Whereas the fantasy sort of tickled their interest uh, up front. And, and Jonathan, uh, I heard anecdotally that biology and chemistry professors in college found an increase in women taking courses that were sort of pre-forensic, inspired by the the the, uh, the actors who you like, you want to be like them in the series uh, Crime Scene Investigation in CSI. Did you find this as well coming up? Well, I think that uh, increasingly uh, forensics is becoming a matriarchy. There are a lot of uh, a lot of women going into the field, and uh, certainly in my field, uh, uh, my office, I would estimate is probably more than fifty percent female when it comes to the medical exam and stuff. And I think that's common in 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 other areas too. But I don't think it's just that they're impressed by the the, the actors. Uh, I, I think they have you know minds that are interested in problem solving and uh, figuring out how to bury a body. No, but I mean, I I grew up at a time when no scientist was portrayed as anything you'd want to be. <laughs> Right. Like if you were cool and you saw a movie that had scientists in it, the scientists were not cool. And so there was no there was no draw. There was no pop culture force operating on how you might align your life's ambitions. And uh, CSI, all the actors are beautiful. Um, the men, the women, the storytelling, what they're wearing. Plus, they're shown with real-life problems, right? They're boyfriends, girlfriends, relationship problems. So they're fully fleshed-out characters. So, Jonathan, are you a fully fleshed-out character? <laughs> oh, dear God. That's a difficult question to ask. <laughs> hey, how does that work at the bar? If someone say, hey, what do you do? I study dead bodies. It's like, that's a, that's a short conversation, it might seem to me. <laughs> no, people, you know, because there is this interest. There was a, an article in New York Magazine a few years back that said that forensic pathologists are the new supermodels. Because, I mean, you turn on your TV set any hour of the day or night, you're going to see a forensic show, whether, whether it's like, you know, true crime that's or right. whether it's some sort of thriller, whether there's someone's burying a body in the basement or whatnot. And the, 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 the way my career in forensics in general is portrayed in popular uh, culture it really catches the imagination of people. And I think it's because at some level, in the old days, a hero was a guy with muscles who knew how to handle a gun. Uh, and, and forensics is, a, is, is an area where a nerd with a brain and, and some sharp insights is able to be even more powerful than that. And that's why the forensic science, I think, become, it, it makes the forensic scientist becomes a good hero. Well, so let's, uh, let's pick up with my interview with Patricia Cornwell, who uh, in her next book, there's like crime in space. Let's see what she says about that. I think that I might be the first author that has written about a, a, a case of violence in um, low Earth orbit, in microgravity, in space, in other words, um, to do it in the credible way that, that it's not science fiction. I mean, everything that I have in that scene that Scarpetta has to remotely work from the Situation Room in the White House to get, I mean, it's all within the realm of possibility. And the physics of it, 
um, what would happen when there's blood or the type of projectile somebody might use if, if you were going to do that. And look, you know as well as I do, the Russians have carried guns up there to the space station. They don't, you know, NASA doesn't advertise that, but it's true. <laughs> um, and we, it's, the, the, the whole point is, my little mo- mantra these days is from, from Earth, from space to ground to six feet under, because wherever we go, we will export what we do, whether it's in orbiting laboratories down the road or when people actually go to the moon and try to set up habitats or Mars or it, it's going to happen. And we're also going to have death. You know, we're going to have things um, that we don't like to think about. And for me, I'm always wondering, what are you going to do about that? What so pe- people will be people, whether they're on Earth oh. or in space, and you're there to tell that that kind of story. Well, you know the, the thing that's kind of fun about it because I talk to the real people. I talk to NASA people about this. You know, I talked to to Jack Fisher, the you know astronaut who was up there for a while, and we talked about what blood would do and fluids and. Um, oh, just and to be know, clear, blood that's not in your body. <laughs> that's true. Blood that's not in your body. Blood that um, has spilled out of your body. What will and, it do? And, and then what happens? You know, if where you've got a scene where something like this has occurred and some astronauts, you know, come and we'll use the dream chaser. I know it's not crude yet, but it probably will be. Um, and they, you know, they get to this this orbiter that's in peril. Well, if you've had anything where you have death inside and a violent death, what's that going to be like? And how does a medical examiner work that? Yeah, Jonathan, the uh, I, this brings up an interesting question. You are completely trained for Earth-based crimes. That is, uh, crimes operating under sort of the laws of physics as they manifest in 1G here on Earth. Can you imagine a future where uh, if we have colonies on the moon or Mars or beyond or, or hotels in space, uh, can you imagine a branch, a sub-branch of your field that then has to sort of learn space physics? to do your job? You know, I don't know how much space physics there's going to be involved. I think the periods of time that, that man is going to spend in zero gravity are going to be fairly limited. And perhaps not in, when it comes to things like the space station, but when you're looking at actually larger colonies where, where, where people would actually live, which is where I think violence is mostly like, likely to play out, I think there'll be at normal gravity and you know, the traditional medical examiner um, role is going to be pretty much the same. And I think it'll be fairly specialized, the cases like, like Patty was talking about, like a, I'm assuming a, some sort of violent blood spilling murder takes place in, in microgravity or zero gravity. And I don't know if that's going to be a frequent enough occurrence that it's going to develop into its own full-fledged specialty. But it's going to, it's going to be... <laughs> You'd hope not. That will be a challenge. And when I th- was thinking about that too, what, what, what it could mean, a, a crime scene in, in zero gravity, the first thing that struck me was what Patty was talking about was the... Um, Blood, uh, blood droplet uh, spatter dynamics going to be different because you know you've probably seen your you know when you walk along after you've cut yourself you can see the the, the shape of the blood spatter uh, on on your floor or, or whatever and you can interpret the, the way you're moving and or if you're standing still if you're standing still or the person is standing still and dripping blood from say a weapon onto the floor it, it tends to have a round appearance whereas when you're moving it, it tends to have a teardrop appearance. But that's going to be different in in, in uh, microgravity or zero gravity. And so I think there's going to be some interesting science that's probably going to evolve because of that. But I have to say, I mean, this is a question for you, just how realistic are these? We talk about, uh, you know, uh, colonizing distant planets. 
But on a large scale, how realistic is it? I mean, we had the Concorde in, what, 1965 or something like that. We had supersonic travel available to, to well, again, the very wealthy man. Um, but it's gone now. And so how realistic are these dreams of colonizing uh, far planets? Yeah, I think if... if <laughs> uh, I I'm, I'm tend to be a little on the, the skeptical side that any of that is going to happen anytime soon. But that shouldn't prevent people from getting ready for it either legally or medically or, or, the, or the like. Um, little things, for example, as I understand it from movies I've seen, if you die while you're seated, then blood collects in your butt and in your feet or something, right? Because you don't have this sort of action, this vascular action to keep blood circulating. And if in zero-G, the blood doesn't collect anywhere. So a lot of your cues you would use to judge how long a body's been dead are not available to you. Yeah, that's a fascinating right? thought. You're, you're absolutely right. And how quickly will people bleed from an open wound if there's zero gravity? Right, right, right. right. It's, it's, wow. it's all of that. And what, so, so let me ask you this. From a, mm -hmm. I was just going to ask from a forensic standpoint, because one of the things that happens in space is like a common death is like soup malfunction or something. And the person freezes solid because they're in space. Now, could would you be able to do an autopsy on like if if the person died, would you be able to do an autopsy on a solidly you frozen can't. body? It's, 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 it's like you know when, when you have a frozen body, it's like trying to chip into an iceberg. You're not, you're not going to get very far. So all you have to do is thaw the body, and of course, as you thaw the body, the body begins to break down fairly rapidly. Of course, in space, I think there may also be issues of uh, of desiccation, the body drying out very quickly. And there are questions of barotrauma, um, and Bill knows far more about this than, than, than I do, where, where, where the body is subjected to tremendous uh, pressures out in the vacuum of space or removed from the vacuum of space. So it, it'll be, it, when, it, when, it, when we do start to see it, it'll, it'll be interesting. But you know, I think I may have retired before that happens. I want to retire relevant. <laughs> I have to ask, you know, how often am I hanging out with a with a forensic pathologist. Could you explain exactly what rigor mortis is? Rigor mortis is, is stiffening of the muscles that occurs after death. The, uh, the, 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 the muscle proteins gradually kind of coagulate, and as they coagulate, they, they stiffen up, the muscles stiffen. And you first detect it in, well, the first place you can detect it is with goose flesh, because uh, you, you have tiny little muscles that, that raise and lower the hairs on, on your body to, to trap air and keep you warm or not. So in the early stages, when rigor first comes in, uh, you'll start to see a little bit of goose flesh uh, developing, and you see these tiny little muscles pulling. Up. Wait, wait, just to be clear, you're on a first name basis with rigor mortis, okay? You call it rigor sets in. <laughs> rigor. Yeah, rigor mortis, it's, yeah. it's a bit long. Rigor. Yeah, so. so okay. yeah. I'm not on a first name basis. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll warm up to that. I hope, but, I but, hope you know again. But go on. But uh, then, then <laughs> you, you, you test for rigor by trying to, to bend joints. And. Um, Fairly small joints like finger joints become stiff first because it takes a lot of muscles to, to stiffen the hip joint or the knee joint. So we test in the fingers first, then we test in the jaw, and then the, the arms, etc. And so from the, from the amount of rigor that's present in the body, you can get some soft sense of how long the person has been dead to, to get that degree of stiffness. Now, if someone, a lot of it relates to the body temperature at the time of death. And if someone has a seizure at the time they die, if they have a violent seizure, say they're doing cocaine or something like that, they have a seizure and they die, uh, that will raise the body temperature and the person will go into rigor mortis faster. So you have to be very careful. Interpreting the time since death is one of the hardest things we do. It's part of the, the, the science that's closest to an art, really. Mm. Wait, wait, and so, so then I heard wow. that rigor mortis eventually goes away. 
So what happens there? It does. The, the muscle proteins oh. begin to, to break down again and the, and, and the rigor sort of slackens. But now you're starting to get onto, onto you know, the body's beginning is about to begin to break down. Typically, you can feel rigor mortis by about six hours after death. It's generally there by about 12 hours and goes off by about 36 hours. Oh, wow. Whoa. Okay, so that, all, that. that whole expression where someone, you refer to a dead body as a stiff, that's a temporary condition. Yeah, yeah, but I think stiff sounds better than temporarily stiff. We we do, we don't <laughs> temporary stiff. We, we don't we, we don't use that expression. You'd you'd actually be surprised. We, I mean, it's because we see death the whole time. We're not alarmed or surprised. Not, there's not an intense emotional reaction. There's not an intense emotional reaction to it unless it's the death of a child or some particularly tragic uh, circumstance. There, so right. we we don't say the word cadaver. We don't say corpse. We just call them bodies. Oh wow! Yeah, mm-hmm. wow, that's very politically correct. I'm just going to say, Jonathan, I don't, I don't think they'll be offended. <laughs> no, that's right. And 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 if they are, who are they going to tell? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, how about this? If uh, just before we go to break, uh, if a crime is committed in a distant place, again, I'm thinking space here because uh, Patricia's novel was in space. If some a crime happens in space, are you able to talk someone through an investigation of a scene? If let's say they're just generally scientifically literate, but they have no medical background such as what you have, can can you talk them through it and then have them submit a report on your behalf for having done so? I, I think I, I mean I think I could. I could tell them what to look for. I could tell them how to turn the body and 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 what to check for. Um, I think I could do that. I mean, obviously, I'd want them to document okay. as thorough as they could, whether you know, with photographs or, or, or videos, so I could see for myself. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you could do this from the beach while they're up there <laughs> doing. In, in theory, the in theory, work. but there's, there's no real substitute for seeing with your own eyes, and that's actually what autopsy means. Autopsy means own eyes. It says having your own eyes looking at the body and seeing what's going on inside it. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. Look at that. All right, yeah, all right, all right. Cool. And another thing. All right, now uh, one last question. I got one. What is the temperature? Of the, of the the slidey things that you put the body in down in the morgue. We don't. We I always wondered what that is. We, is we it, don't use those anymore. There's there's. I'm sorry about. Oh that. oh come on no no bring them back. Oh, we need them. The old superstitions have to be disposed of. No, I mean it's like in, it's like any you couldn't clean the floors of those refrigerators, you know, because of the because of the you know, slide in and out thing. So. You could, Eventually, they begin to reek and uh, and build up fluid. So it was a horrible thing. Uh, it's just walk-in refrigerators like you have at your local restaurant and uh, a system of gurneys for, for transporting the bodies on. The only time we, we see those drawer-type... You know, he means meat locker. Chuck, did I hear him say meat locker? Yeah, I was going to say... That's exactly what he said. Yeah, I was going to say... I hope to God it's not like my local restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we got a slab of steer right here, and we got Ernie. Yeah, Ernie didn't yeah. make it through last exactly. night. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but more on forensic pathology with our two guests, Patricia Cornwell and Jonathan Hayes from Star Talk Return. You know what shouldn't feel like rocket science? planning a vacation your whole crew will love. With Carnival Cruise Line, it's all up to you. You can kick back or dive right into the fun. Paddleboard in the crystal clear waters of one of Carnival's exclusive destinations, Half Moon Key in the Bahamas. Take an ATV ride through the jungle or just relax on white sandy Caribbean beaches. The fun continues on ship 
from a ride on the Bolt roller coaster to a moment of pure bliss at the Cloud Nine Spa. Kick off the evening with a craft cocktail at any of Carnival's dazzling bars and lounges and take your pick of restaurants from surf and turf to family-style Italian. Then settle in for an evening of live entertainment. Whatever your vibe is, you'll come home with plenty of stories to tell. So pack those bags, be sure to leave room for a few unforgettable memories because no one does fun like Carnival Book your dream vacation at Carnival.com. Ships Registry, The Bahamas and Panama. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll, to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. We're back with Jonathan Hayes, medical examiner of New York City. Jonathan, what? right before we took a break, you were about to tell a story because we, we were talking about meat lockers. Yes, because we I, think I saying, that's what you were describing. <laughs> well, no, we, we, we do. <laughs> modern, modern storage of bodies is in walk-in coolers, which are just very efficient way to handle the space, and they're easy to clean. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of, of, of meat lockers, uh, during the uh, cocaine wars of, of the uh, 1980s and into about 1990, in Miami, there were so many homicides that they weren't able to hold all the bodies in, in, in the morgue uh, refrigerators. And so what they were forced to do was to rent trucks. And they rented some uh, refrigerator trucks. And some of them had the Burger King logo on the outside of those. And when word got, ooh, out, ooh. When word got out that bodies were being stored in Burger King refrigerator trailers, apparently there was such an outcry amongst the population uh, that uh, uh, the, the agency got a, a large amount of money to build this beautiful new state-of-the-art facility with appropriate body storage. And so that was a, a really okay. upside of that. <laughs> That sounded tactical, actually. Hold the pickle, hold the lettuce, and the dead guy. Thanks. <laughs> well, I think these medical examiners' offices really only sort of rapidly improve when there's been a scandal. I mean, it's one of the sad truths. They tend to be fairly neglected politically. No one wants to talk about them. No one wants to fund them. Uh, so we tend to jump forward when there's something terrible like that happens. Well, so I have to ask, in these meat lockers and in refrigerator trucks, how are the dead humans stored? Are they on meat hooks like slabs of beef? No, actually, Neil, they're not on meat hooks like slabs of I beef. Am, I am so disappointed now. <laughs> <laughs> this has really been disillusioning for you both. I know. It really is. Look, I'm sorry okay, we interviewed okay. you. We'd rather just imagine this stuff. Don't, give, don't ruin it all with facts. <laughs> 
That's that's what I was saying. My, my old boss, Dr. Charles, there, she used to have an expression to slay an ugly theory with a beautiful fact. Yes. The around, to slay a beautiful theory with an ugly fact. And, uh, right. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to have made this such a sad thing. I mean, no more <laughs> bodies hanging on meat hooks in. in <laughs> but you have to at least store them horizontally, right? Otherwise, it won't work. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose you could restore them vertically, but the, the blood would pool, as you were talking about earlier. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. the, the bodies are stored in a, in a shelving system. With a, it's, it's all very modular and very efficient. Okay. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of systems for mass storage of bodies, and uh, you know, all agencies are prepared for mass fatality events, unfortunately. Wow. So can I ask you this? Uh, a long time ago, I interviewed a police officer and he talked about a person who was murdered and they found him in his apartment in New York City. The way they found him is he leaked through the ceiling. Ew. So Ew. what would that be? Your what question, would, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, my question is, what happened if that's the case or was this guy messing with me? No, I'm sure he was telling you the truth. What happens is after death, uh, the body begins to break down. There's no immune system anymore. The, the, the white cells die off. The bacteria now rage throughout the body and the bacteria produce gas and they cause the body to bloat and they break down the blood and cause it to go red and green and create a lot of discoloration. And as the pressure in the tissues builds from the, 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 the gas as the body swells, the body will exude fluids as, as, as its tissues break down. And that fluid we call purge fluid and that will spill out around the body and sometimes it'll throw it, soak through the ceiling. Ooh. Holy crap. Ooh. <laughs> I know it's, 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 it's not an attractive thing. Yeah, that's, uh, that's terrible. So, so, the, oh, so the, the bloating, that makes the body much less dense than it once was because it's the same mass now occupying a bigger volume. This would then cause the body to float if it was dead and at the bottom of any uh, any in the river. So that's why you need cement boots, right? That, that, that's exactly why you need cement boots. But it's also why uh, if someone goes into the water, into the East River or to, into the Hudson uh, during the winter, it may be a few months before the body develops enough gas from bacterial um, overgrowth that it'll actually start to float up to the top. So there may be delay between someone drowning and us actually finding the bodies. Mm. There's this popular notion that when spring comes and the weather warms up and the water temperature warms up, then you get a harvest of bodies bobbing up to the surface. It's not quite that extreme, but yeah, we don't. We don't bodies that are floating tend to be provide. Sometimes they, you know, they get clothing traps and air, or they may have swallowed some air and they can float because of that. Okay, so just just to be very precise, this because you're you're breaking down this whole uh, the whole evolution of a dead body, so. So the rigor mortis, that gives us the language, where's the stiff, right? So we got that. Then you bloat, and then that makes you buoyant. So that gets us the cement boots part of crime, right? And, okay, I'm just, I'm just fleshing out the full picture here. So uh, this is highly illuminating for me. <laughs> Thank you. Good. No, I mean, clearly you're on top of this stuff. You should have gone right. into forensic medicine <laughs> rather than astrophysics. You could have used people like you. So, oh, uh, dovetailing on what Neil just said, could you commit the perfect murder? You mean in, in terms of killing someone and getting away with it? Oh, yes, Jack. Yes. Oh, leaving yes. leaving behind no evidence or no discernible cause of death or uh, no way. I mean, forget alibis and all that kind of police work stuff. Just like 
they would never be able to trace it back to you. Could you do that? So we put Jonathan together with the TV series, uh, how to, uh, what, what's it called? How to commit a perfect- yeah, How to get away with murder. How to get away with murder. How to get away yeah, with there murder. There it is. So the two of them, because they know what everybody's looking for. Yeah, so Jonathan. Right. Jonathan. I better never see you having lunch with Viola Davis. <laughs> is there plotting? <laughs> Viola Davis, the star. Somebody's going, somebody's going down. Violet Davis, the star of, of How to Get Away with Murder. So th wouldn't that make you a prime suspect in a murder where there's otherwise no evidence? I, I, I hope not. <laughs> Good answer. You should just stop there. Don't say anything else. <laughs> no, no, I, I should. No, I, 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 think, I think it is possible. To, it would be possible to kill someone without leaving any, any clues or trace. Uh, let's not go. <laughs> okay. All right. But it is I have true. No yeah, well, of ever killing anyone. It is true. It's very hard to dispose of a dead body. That's the problem. It's not killing people. It's getting getting rid of the body. I, we had a, a case where where a, a man murdered his wife, and then he buried her in the basement. And then for the next couple of weeks, he sat there watching endless repeats of CSI. And then finally, he went to the police station. And says, "Look." You're going to get me sooner or later. I'm going to tell you I murdered my wife and I buried her in the basement. Oh. Wow. 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 So That's, CSI yeah. solved the CSI. crime, even though... It did. Exactly. Well, CSI also creates problems because now, for a while at least, when the show was you know, on the air all the time and everyone loved it, there's six different variations. I think CBS is actually bringing it back. But the juries began to demand higher levels of... of visual proof. They wanted more sort of glamorous you know, you know, animations and like this incredible cutting edge science, which as I said, was on the border of science fiction. Right, right. And by the way, CSI wasn't just medical. Uh, there was also some physics involved in thermodynamics. I mean, not in every episode, but they would bring in, you know, the, some of the physical sciences when they related to the crime and, and the murder. So that uh, there were some scientifically literate people there. CSI had a traveling museum exhibit where you would then no. solve your own crime, kids, a kid exhibit, where you go step by step and they give you clues and you have to figure it out. So it was a big force on the television landscape. So I was very impressed to watch that unfold. Well, how about the future of uh, AI? AI is going to touch all of us in every way. Hmm. Uh, it already has in, in some professions. But uh, I think uh, Patricia thought about that. And she was very impressed with what the future of AI might bring. So let's find out what she tells us. What's happening today is, is so amazing and the line between what's real and what isn't, it, assuming we even know the difference between the two, the line is getting blurrier and blurrier. And so basically when you think of an Alexa or these devices that we have, ultimately everybody is, you're gonna have artificial intelligence assistance um, even if even if you don't know you've got it. And and that's the thing that's both good and bad about it is that it we can't be without it. I mean, we can't we can't manage this world, in my opinion, without artificial intelligence, especially uh, think of air traffic control when you have drones buzzing around and things like that. Oh wait, 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 you just said something very important. You're suggesting that the complexity of the world we are building for ourselves may one day require AI just to navigate it. Well, look at what's happened with with your mobile phones. I mean, we've created uh, many computers that people really almost can't function without. Mm. So, so, wow. so, so, Jonathan, is there, 
Can you picture a day where AI conducts the investigation and not you? I think a citizen would be would be closer. I, I don't think uh, AI will ever be. For example, things like an autopsy. Not all bodies are the same. Everybody has numerous different idiosyncrasies. They're very subtle little anatomic differences in structure. And actually examining the, the body is a very complex thing. It's both visually, like sometimes olfactory. And then it's, you know, the touch and, you know, the, the feeling of, you know, actually putting your hands in and examining the length of the wound, etc. I think it'll be a long time before there's, uh, uh, you know, robots or whatever that are sensitive enough to, to be able to do that with the discrimination a human can do. That said, when they do, I expect they may have a slightly higher degree of accuracy. I think there's less room for observer bias then. But for a long time, those robots will have to be overseen uh, by you know, someone human to see if, they're, if they haven't gone hopelessly off the rails. I think where AI will be useful, things like in a crime scene, there is a thousand, there's a million things going on in a crime scene. I think the big problem is trying to decide what's relevant to the crime and what's not. For example, if you have a dead body lying on the floor, there's blood spatter over the place. There could be a thousand blood spatter droplets distributed about the floor and the walls, even the ceiling of the apartment sometimes. And if you think at some point the killer stood with his knife over the victim or was carrying the knife and, and may have left his own blood on, 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 on the scene, how do you figure out which of all those drops of blood is significant and which, is, which relates to the killer and is not actually the victim's blood? And I think with pattern recognition, and, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that I think that AI down the road might be able to look at, like a dense information field, look for patterns and find out the subtle exception that would escape the human eye. But I do think it's a long time. I, I, and I, you know, I do think it's a long time before we'll be able to rely on AI. For example, at the moment, there's a lot of discussion in forensic pathology about stopping doing an autopsies and just doing it all virtual. A vertopsy is an examination of the body using a, T, a, a CT scanner. And uh, the, the, the Swiss are very keen on this, and they feel that it can completely replace doing the autopsy itself. They don't. They still do autopsies. Uh, but I think increasing, they're moving towards virtual autopsies. New York, in the legal system, New York lawyers are not going to say, you know, are not going to just sit back and accept that the, uh, the uh, virtual, the CT scan is accurate, that it's, that it's a subdural hematoma rather than, say, meningitis that you're looking at. So I think there's going to be, it's going to be a, a while before that sort of technology comes in and plays a specifically a, a guiding or controlling part. Well, you, you sound like Chuck, because I said this of Chuck. He said, no, comedy is too complicated for AI to take it over. <laughs> so Chuck, absolutely. Chuck just wants to make sure he's still employed going into the future. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's no way. There's no way they could tell a joke. Uh, not, not, not with all the nuance that a comedian does. That's, and by the way, if they ever do, you can rest assured a glass of water inside their circuitry is waiting. <laughs> Damn, Chuck. <laughs> Coming right yeah, from me. That's called murder, Chuck. <laughs> yes. But it, Roboticide. But it's the kind of oh, there's a word for it. Roboticide. Oh, what? Roboticide. I don't know if you can kill something that's inanimate, but that's a philosophical discussion for another forum, I think. <laughs> but I think you're, you're right. I think that gets at it. Because if someone, can you imagine a, a, a robot comedian trying to handle a heckler? You know, the complexities involved in that, the analysis of what was being said, which will have probably obscure cultural references if you're a, a silicon-based machine. Right. And then actually trying to have to formulate a response. It's a, it's a really good example, I think. I mean, even just, you know, the Turing test, if the computer to pass the Turing test is still, well, that's a lot less challenging than it was before. It reminds me yeah. there's a, a brief moment in the movie Terminator where he's 
he's repairing his injured arm in a hotel room and the someone knocks on the door and he has to figure out what response to give him. So you see this, <laughs> you see through his mind's eye, I mean, through his computer eye, you see a multiple choice. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's, um, go away, I'm busy, or come back later, or you asshole. <laughs> he goes and chooses, <laughs> chooses that response. So it could be if you if you have a, a, a an AI comedian and there's a heckler, they can decide whether they, they're nice to the heckler or not. There's right. just a, it's a it's a, no, a knob that you turn. But but Jonathan, you right. said something very important, which I I'm very sensitive to just in my own field, where pattern recognition humans are good at it, but we can be very biased. If you take an unbiased pattern-recognizing AI, it can, for complex things, just like you said, the, the splatter pattern of blood or the, a pattern of, 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 of casings, shell casings, where they landed and how, they might be able to do a back extrapolation into where the gun was when it was fired and... Uh, there could be some interesting sort of three-dimensional analysis that AI could perform that we couldn't. Absolutely. That's how I think it'll unroll. I mean, when I first started, when I first came to New York, uh, and it was 1990, we had this nightmarish homicide rate. We were having six murders a day. And they just had no time to investigate the cases. So we'd be working off for the scene investigation. I didn't go to the scenes, but we'd get the, the investigating detectives would show up with like six or seven Polaroids at the crime scene. You know, poor resolution, not ideally photographed, not ideally lit, and it just wasn't great. And then, you know, fast forward, you know, whatever, 30 years, and we've got, you know, video, we've got uh, high resolution. For, even, even the photograph your, your iPhone takes is, is, is just amazing. And we have this really cool machine now that you, you put it in the center of a room and it just scans the entire room, very Blade Runner machine, scans the entire room and measures all the distances and can rebuild a model of that room. And that's fascinating technology. And I think that's where things are going. I mean, you see it in the real estate market now, you know, when people are selling their houses, they can have a, a virtual walkthrough using this thing. But you can measure accurately down to the centimeter. Discriminating between what's real and what is un irrelevant is really um, it's a, a big problem in forensics. And it's one of the things that frustrates me, and like CSI, Gil Grissom will walk into the scene and, and then he'll pick up a single fragment of glass in a whole field filled with glasses of well, this just doesn't fit. This is the problem. And, and that is the answer. <laughs> and it just doesn't work like that, sadly. But, but, if if that were Sherlock Watson, the AI, <laughs> Sherlock, Sherlock Watson. Watson, the AI, <laughs> would be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, they would. Sherlock Watson, Sherlock Watson would walk in and just be like, this man's been dead for 12 hours. And, like, 12 hours and 36 no, minutes. Yes, it, okay. <laughs> Right. They were like, yeah, but the rigor, rigor mortis isn't right. And he'd be like, rigor, please. No, this man, I can tell you, has been dead. <laughs> Sherlock Watson. Okay, that's a good one. Sherlock Watson, the, the AI. Very good. Well, I mean, that's, that's the direction good. we're going in. But, I, you know, you know how, in, you know how fallible computers are. You know, it's still they still depend on, I, I still think for a very long time, and maybe for forever, they're going to need uh, humans to sign off on them, that they haven't gotten the, the stick wrong. And of course, that reintroduces the whole question of bias, which is one of the big challenges. Yeah, yeah of course, of course. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Right. Well, Once again, Sherlock Watson sends another black man to jail. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Damn. Chuck. 
That means it's time to end right now. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, it's been great having you on. You're the first forensic pathologist I've ever had a conversation with. Uh, and, and maybe it showed, for better or for worse. <laughs> but have you been delighted. Are forensic pathologist or something? No, I just haven't. <laughs> it's, it's just a, a non-overlapping Venn diagrams in my life. But it was delighted to have you on. I want to thank you for taking time away from your import, very important and busy schedule uh, to join us in my interview with Patricia Cornwell. And uh, delighted to hear that you, you have a no two novels out there, Precious Blood and A Hard Death. And uh, we'll, we'll look for them uh, wherever books are sold, uh, of course. And so, Chuck, thanks for being here, as always. Always a pleasure, always. Yeah, and Jonathan, I th we're going to try to find you again because this 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 topic has no end. Good, it, it and, doesn't. And I was really uh, interested to hear your thoughts about the future of space colonies because that's something I think about a lot. In the last few months, as we've watched the private enterprises take people into space, I'm just curious as to how Yeah, here's a quick one for you. You ready? So if you bury someone on the moon, there are no microorganisms there to decompose the body. So the only organisms are the microbes that were in your body when you were buried but there's nothing exterior to that. So the whole decomposition arc will be very different because of that, because it's not really soil. But that's, that's, that's all you need, though. You, we carry, there's some sort of horrific statistic about what percentage of our body mass is, is bacteria, and it's a significant portion. That'll be enough. Yeah, I just, I, just look, I just looked at it. We have more bacterial cells in our body than we have body cells. Yeah. So that, that, that's pretty I think freaky the, right root, there. the rate limiting thing there is going to be cold, and um, is also going to be uh, water. Bacteria, most bacteria, like a little bit of warmth and water to, 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 to germinate. Jonathan, delight to have you on. Thanks for taking time out. Uh, Chuck, Chuck, always good to have you. This has been Star Talk, Forensic Pathology Edition. <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist. Keep looking up. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.